Good evening and welcome to Shattered Lives, a lively, educational, and issues-driven radio show designed to tell another side of the story, to focus on and humanize crime victims, to enlighten and shine the spotlight on organizations and service providers, and to assist those who walk the path with us. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you this evening and every Saturday evening for enlightenment, um, awareness, uh, and uh, entertainment regarding the aftermath of crime and other uh, related issues. So I want to say good evening, everyone across the nation, whether you be a longtime listener or a new listener, and especially to those people who might be listening from Wild Blue Press this evening. We're so glad to have you, and um, we're so glad to be in this uh, collaborative relationship with Wild Blue Press and uh, Steve Jack. It's truly an honor to feature um, all of your uh, up-and-coming authors. And uh, this evening we have a very esteemed author, um, uh, Kevin M. Sullivan, that we're going to be speaking to in just a minute. But I'd like to say good evening to my co-host, Delilah. Hi, Delilah. Good evening. How are you? Hi, Donna. I'm doing fine. Happy to be here on another Saturday afternoon and um, with another exciting guest. I'm just so excited to have all of these authors on because they really they cover a lot of ground and they bring up a lot of research that, that maybe the average person doesn't know about um, in a, either a specific case or or true crime altogether. So I'm, I'm really happy to have Kevin on tonight and uh, I'm ready to go. Yeah, well, well, me too. Um, I had the opportunity to have a very lengthy conversation with him this week, very cordial, and I believe mm-hmm. he's from uh, Louisville, Kentucky area. Um, yes. He started his career right, uh, as a, an ordained minister, as a pastor, and has been writing very prolifically, my understanding, since, since at least the mid-'90s. Uh, and we have a um, somewhat of a, a resume on our post regarding the the books that he's done, both historically on George Armstrong Custer, as well as a, a, a very unique book on Ted Bundy, which is wildly popular. Um, and also this book that we're going to talk about this, this evening um, about Richard Chase called Vampire. So mm-hmm. without further ado, um, let me welcome you to Shattered Lives, Kevin. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, thank you all for having me on. I have been looking forward to it uh, from the moment I received the invitation, so thank you. Well, it's 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 our pleasure, and you know this is the beginning of our series, and and what um, you know what a pleasure it is because I think this is a a, a, a unique book that we're going to discuss. Perhaps before we get into the meat of the matter, as they say, mm-hmm. would you like to say a few words regarding? Um, you know, your philosophy of writing and how, how your writing evolved, perhaps sure, in sure. your association with Wild Blue Press, because we want to give them their due as well. Okay. Well, I, I would like to say that it's really no wonder that I write true crime. Uh, when I was 10 years old, I uh, pulled a book off my father's bookshelf. He was an attorney, but he was a voracious reader. 
And he had a lot of books on a lot of subjects. And I pulled this one book off the shelf. It was uh, Charles Franklin's The World's Worst Murderers. I was 10 years old. It took me a couple of weeks to finish that book, but it was the first adult book I had read. And uh, he had already read the book. So he and I, you know, talked about it a little bit, uh, you know, but I was just captivated by the subject matter. And uh, so from then I went on, I just, I didn't go back to kids' books, you know, from that that point. I would read mm-hmm. things about the Second World War, the First World War. And I always was, you know, the thing about writers, I mean, I didn't know I was going to be a writer when I was a kid, but writers think differently. They're very inquisitive. They 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 have a genuine love for the printed word. All those things existed in me. I wasn't the best student in school <laughs> because I was too busy reading other things. But uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, but there's a there's this stuff about writers. Okay, so then one day you know when you're you, you know you have a career. I'm in the ministry. You, know, you start writing, but then you start writing things, right? And then that. That it just rises. I like to say it rises within the blood, and and it's it's having the ability to take information when you're when, when you're looking at something like true crime and you're writing about a case and you get the case files and if it's a, a current or fairly current murder, you got to interview a lot of people. But people who are kind of like meant to do those things, they'll find all of that enjoyable. It's a tremendous amount of work. But right. you like you get carried by it all the way through it, and you love just putting that stuff down on the printed page. So, if you're not love, if a person doesn't love to do that, they would know they're not supposed to be a writer. But for those of us that do these sorts of things, um, it's really it's really in our blood. I, I have to I, as uh, I believe I'm a writer as well and I, I totally agree with you. It's it's a passion and it's something yep. you really enjoy and you a, a wonderful vehicle for expression if that's what you do. You know, yep. other people paint, you know, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it takes us a while for our, our talents to evolve and you know, I was just thinking as you were talking, perhaps maybe you were standing up there in the pulpit one time and and mm-hmm. here was your sermon, and then you, your sermon, mm-hmm. maybe that evolved into your, a mm-hmm. future book. Did that ever occur to you when, in well, your former career? Well, you know, I'll tell you something. When, when you, There are people that everybody that knows me, they, they, they get me. They understand my ministry calling. They understand uh, what I do with my writing. But some people think the first thing they hear when they think, a minister or a former minister is writing true crime, they go, gee, what's, there's something not clicking correctly there. But if you look at the scripture, I mean, this planet we're spinning in space through. From the moment humanity appeared, you know, there were problems. Uh, one of those problems was murder. And the Bible mm-hmm. is filled with murder, and it's filled with a lot of stuff. You'll find that there, uh, and that's also what I'm talking about, about the, the inquisitiveness of the writer and the the way people can think when they are, you know, trying not just float through life, but figuring things out in life. And there, if you look at true crime, the way I look at true crime, it doesn't matter if I'm looking at a murder in, in, in the Bible or if I'm reading the newspaper about something that happened yesterday. From my perspective, I am looking at it as what happened, why did it happen, 
was the victim a high-risk person? Were they a low-risk person? Is there something they could have done to avert the murder? Is this a murder that happened by chance? Was it planned? There's a lot that goes into what actually happens in murder if, if you're writing true crime. You mm-hmm. write something about war, it's a much broader scale. People get caught up in these cataclysmic events and uh, that are started by nations. But when you take it down to the level of a single taking of a human life, especially an intentional taking of a human life, that draws that piques my interest immediately because mm-hmm. I know there are things within each story that I write about. And and listen, we'll, you know we'll be discussing this book on 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 you know Richard Chase. You know people love vampires. Well, here we have a living one. I mean he's he's dead now, but this guy was yeah. just he was a vampire. And there were things that that happened in this case where, um, like for example. Do people should people keep their doors locked on on their homes at night and even in the day? My answer is yes. And as we discuss the the chase case, I'll show you how that plays out. Same thing in the car. What goes on within a murder? Why does the murder happen? Why are some killers averted from killing people and then they have to go on and kill others? These are all questions that come out in the type of true crime that I write. I'm always looking for these angles, and I'm all. And it for me, it's a redemptive uh, sort of thing. I try to get the information out there of what people can do. Because really, mm-hmm. I like to say this: the more people understand about that dark world, the better prepared you are to avoid it and to square I think around that's it. Good point. Mm-hmm. And not become yeah. a victim. Very important. And. It is a very yeah. a very good point. I don't think it's something that we necessarily think about. We kind of go along our way, and we no. think, oh, our life is just our, our life. And some people leave high-risk high, yeah. high life, and some people leave uh, low-risk. But then sometimes, isn't it, Kevin, that we're just kind of a victim of circumstance and we're in the wrong place at the wrong time? That can happen. Uh, you know, you think about the uh, guy, um, George... Hanard, who drove his truck into Luby's back in, the, I think, the 1980s. And he he smashed, at, it was at noon, he smashed through the glass, and there were 80 people, and 40 of them ran from the place while he's shooting at them, and 40 of them stayed and hid under the tables, and the ones who were hiding under the tables, those were the most likely to, to actually die. Now, if you drove a truck today in to a Luby's, you're going to have men whipping pistols out and shooting and killing people because they have the concealed carry law. I have a concealed carry. I carry a 40 caliber Glock every day. People have concealed carry laws. You know, I've been shooting guns since I was a kid. Nobody's ever going to be harmed by my weapons unless they should be harmed. And out would come these pistols. Well, a funny thing happened there. Those people happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. There was a lady that was going with her parents into that restaurant to eat, and she had been trying to get a concealed carry permit. They wouldn't issue her one. She had a pistol in her glove compartment. She thought about taking it in there. This was the very day. She go, she decides not to. She decides to obey the law. She goes in. Bernard busts through the glass. She's with her parents. They don't get out. The father died trying to charge this guy. Some reports say he had a butter knife. He just tried to charge him. He got shot and killed. The mother stayed. She was killed. The woman lived. Now, she was she was instrumental in getting that concealed carry law passed. So 
people have different views about guns. I think guns are just tools. I think uh, there's 300 million of them in the country. Uh, most of those guns are used uh, in a uh, fine way. The 30 or so thousand murders we have a year, vast majority of those murders are gang-related in terrible parts of town. There's a lot of problems. But had she had a weapon, she might have been able to stop Mr. Bernard or at least let him know quickly there's lead coming at you and you're not going to be able to kill as many people as you thought you were. So people can lessen their circumstances about being in the place, the wrong place at the wrong time by things like this. However, that can happen. So you're right about that. Right. But there's a lot of things well, folks could do to avoid mm-hmm. becoming victims. Well, I, I think we could kind of use the whole show just for that point, but um, we're, we don't have the luxury of that. And uh, we, we also want to get to some other um, aspects as yes. well. And I should mention also, because we, uh, for your very uh, generous offer, um, Steve's very generous offer, um, is we're announcing if people are listening to the show live, uh, they yeah. have the opportunity to um, receive a, a free copy of Vampire if they go yeah. to the Wild Blue Press website. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, and I guess they can. They could also go to... to to Amazon. I I don't know how Steve has set well, this up, but it's, it's for a limited time only. He would like to uh, he would like to greet them and and see who the people are initially. That's right. So he asked if they would go through Wild Blue Press initially. That's correct. Um, so that we could do that, and this is an offer just for the running of this show. Um, yeah. um So I'm hoping that people will be signing on perpetually as the hour continues. Um, well, if they if they've never read about Richard Chase, they're going to they're going to get an eyeful because it's a very in depth study, relatively short, but it's a great study, uh, all directly from the files of the Sacramento County District Attorney's Office, with a lot mm-hmm. of good photographs in it as well. That that is true, and I think the crux of the um, of the matter before we start talking about Richard is. Um, this this man has been described as mentally disturbed, but also mm-hmm. you know highly highly intelligent and but knowing the difference between right and wrong, and that to me yes. that seems like a legal quagmire. Can you yes. can you talk about that point where you know legal sanity, but yet there are other parameters and how that kind of played out yes. um, in this case? Yes. Yes. Uh, Richard Chase, from the record, was deeply mentally ill, without question. He was a schizophrenic. Richard Chase believed uh, that his blood was turning to powder, that his pulmonary artery had been removed. Uh, His family members had caught him wrapping orange slices in a towel around his head. Uh, There would be other times when he would do that and stand on his head in the corner because he just had to get the blood back in his head. Now, without question, he was he was a classic schizophrenic. He had trouble keeping himself groomed properly. He was just completely off the wall. Occasionally, medication would help him. So there was no question about his mental illness. Where Chase missed the category of insanity was, and what, what made him, legally sane and able to stand trial 
and in fact get the death penalty was because he had the ability to conceal his crimes. He knew enough and understood enough that what he was doing was against uh, the norms of society and that the authorities would be looking for him, and he knew to keep it concealed. So was he mentally ill? Absolutely. Was he unkempt and looked like he was mentally ill? Absolutely. Was he legally insane? No. And I remember when I spoke with the uh, Sacramento County District uh, district, uh, Attorney, he was the same fellow that worked the case then. I couldn't believe he was still practicing uh, after Uh all these years when I met him in 2012. But real nice guy. But he, he walked me through it. And there was no doubt in my mind, but the way he explained it and how they went at it, it was very thorough. And so they... I mean, the jury could see it, and 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 Chase's attorney. I've spoken to him. In fact, he just passed. Uh, I think his name is uh, Salome. He just mm-hmm. passed away. I think within the last three or four months. He's a real nice guy, and uh, you know he was doing his best to build that case, but the, the hurdles he couldn't get over were the. It just was the fact of Chase's ability to conceal the crime because there, there have been murderers that have not tried to conceal anything, and then they. They're they're truly insane. But when you have that and you know what it is, and I, like I say, I've written a biography of Ted Bundy. Uh, Ted Bundy wasn't mentally ill at all. He was just a psychopath. Now you can look at Ted Bundy. You know, you if you're cutting off heads and you're doing things to, to women, you love necrophilia and all that stuff. You got to say, well, he's nuts. Well, yeah, it's a nice thing to say, but really, no, no it's, he's not. There's uh, uh, is is he wired in a wrong way? Yes, he is. But he's not going to be the deeply mentally ill person that, like Richard Chase was, but he's a psychopath. Now, both men were diabolical, but without question, you know, Richard Chase was deeply mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. a couple things I wanted to ask you. I, I read in, in, in your book that um, suppo- the, his mother was diagnosed as a chronic par- uh, paranoid schizophrenic. Is that right? Uh, I think there's been talk of that. Now, you can read within the case files that um, I, I, I don't recall the exact anything for that, but there were things that she did that caused the marriage to go bad, things that she would accuse her husband of. Now, it mirrors the type of mental instability. It mirrors that he, the very that closely. he had, right? Yes, that Chase had. And it does run in families, doesn't it? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Yes, sometimes it has, but then, for example, it doesn't run in our family at all. But my brother, and uh, he lost, he was about four years older than me. He started doing a lot of hallucinogenic drugs in the uh, late 1960s. And by 1969, 1970, he was mentally ill. He he was a schizophrenic. And what, what was strange about this is because there was a, th- th- there were two other fellows that I knew that he knew. Uh, and I knew uh, them when they weren't uh, Freddie. And these other two young men became deeply mentally ill. And it was all through that use of hallucinogenic drugs. Now, uh, mm-hmm. somehow it altered their chemical, you know, it, it, chemicals in the brain, you know, however that works. And right. as far as my brother's com- concerned, he never came back from that. So we had to go the route of the mental institutions. So we were, I was around a lot of people. I, in fact, I've written about killers that I have seen over there who knew my brother long before I wrote about them. And wow. uh, 
Yeah, yeah. And one of them that I wrote about in something called The Box Hill Murders of a book that will be coming out after a while from Wild Book Press, tentatively mm-hmm. titled Kentucky Bloodbath. Uh, that's got this one guy's uh, story in it, and I've seen him. I've actually talked to him. He ended up hanging himself uh, on, on on their wing one Sunday morning, I think it was. But anyway, uh, so, you know, as a family, we've been all through this. But I can tell you in the case of my brother, we couldn't find any schizophrenia going back from any line. It all happened because of the chemical imbalance. Now, Chase was on drugs. At the same time, there were things right, that LSD his mother... Right, LSD, and fire setting yes, and all of that yes. kind of thing is how it started? Yes, yes. He was on the hallucinogenic drug. I know people do. There's a lot of people that have done LSD that didn't go that way. But sometimes that happened to people. It just so happened to happen to my brother. Now, could part of what happened to Richard Chase be something coming down the line of his family? And I would say come to his mother because his father struck me as being more normal. Mm-hmm. I would say yes. Now, I'm, I'm not casting dispersions at either parent. I'm just saying there appeared to be problems from statements that even she made that were that were that were recorded by the police. That makes you wonder. Go, hmm, what's that about? That is similar, you know. It, you, we, right. it, you, I mean, you, you're just struck with it, and you, and you this have raises to make it a question. Own. It yeah, does. It does. So you're just throwing that out, and you don't see that out of the father. And so it's no wonder the marriage went the way it did. And I point out, I mean, like, for instance, the father took the family one uh, weekend on a camping trip, you know, and they're way out somewhere, God knows where. And the the wife starts accusing the dad of having a woman in the woods. Now think about that. If that's not off the wall, then there isn't any off the wall. So he packed the kids up and the wife and they went back home. So it was strange stuff like this. And so that's the kind of stuff that mirrors some of the strange thinking of Richard Chase. But, yeah. in, but, but, to, but to be fair, Chase was a user of hallucinogenic drugs. And so you have that also as a possibility of why he went this way. But I will say this about Richard Chase. Most people that become schizophrenic, I don't know what the stats are. Years ago, I read from somebody, but I can't find the stat, but I read from somebody. They said about 90% of the people that are schizophrenic are not violent people. And yet some people can be violent. It appeared that my brother was going to become violent on a couple of occasions, but he didn't. But Mm -hmm. he sure appeared like he was, but he didn't. Now, what Richard Chase did has got to be on the unusual end of what happens to people that are schizophrenic. And because of the... and we'll get into this, but the drinking of animal blood right. and then the killing of humans and the ultimate, you know, the, the ultimate, the killing of humans and the drinking of their blood. So Removing you know, the organs and all of that. But I, I want to ask you also, I mean, it, it was attributed to not being very smart, but why do you think that, and, this, and if it's considered spree killing, why do you think he killed all these people in, in the radius of one mile? Well, here's the thing. A smart killer will not kill in the area in which he lives. It was Theodore uh, Buddy was hard to catch because he was a mobile killer, and he was exceedingly mm-hmm. careful in his murders, exceedingly careful. But Chase was the kind of person that once he started, he could do a lot of damage, he could kill a lot of people, but he's not going to escape detection forever. He's going to mess up, and 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 he ended up 
you know, messing up. And but but uh, he killed in his area. Now his first murder, which was uh, I think on December 29th of '77, was a man named Ambrose Griffin. Talk mm-hmm. about being in the wrong spot at the wrong time. He's in his own <laughs> right. driveway. He had gone shopping with his wife. They were unloading groceries, as all families do, carrying them into the house. His wife had gone ahead. They're inside. They hear what sounds like a couple of pops. She's, I think, with a daughter-in-law, is holding the door open just in time for the wife to turn around and see her husband collapse on the ground. They think he's had a heart attack. They, they call the thing, you know, and he's, he's on the ground. He's conscious, but I guess he's losing consciousness. They call the uh, the paramedics and that they're coming there from uh, the um, close by hospital or whatever, and they open his jacket and they see blood a blood pool forming on his shirt, and they, you know they, they they know immediately this guy's been shot. Uh, Mr. Griffin expires within about thirty minutes or so, and uh, that was nothing more than a drive by shooting. Now that's a murder, that's evil, mm-hmm. but that's not diabolical. That's a murder. That's just a murder. Mm-hmm. That was, I believe, Chase's entrance into the world of murder. He had been going around the neighborhood. The he lived right near there. He was he was he started shooting Canvasing, his gun. Right? Everybody? Uh, huh? He, he, I'm sorry. I was is is this the part where he's going around and asking all these people if he could have magazines and newspapers, no. or is that later? No, no, no. Story? No, yeah, that's later. This is when he's okay. driving around and he's, shoot, and he's shooting at homes. And, you know, like one lady was doing her dishes uh, a number of days before, and a bullet comes whizzing through the kitchen window, and it goes through her hair, misses her skull, and embeds in the wall, like, like you know, behind her. And mm-hmm. he's just shooting at people. He's wanting to kill somebody. He manages to kill Ambrose Griffin. So this isn't a drive-by shooting. There's nothing diabolical about it. It's just it's 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 a terrible thing. He, he's committed murder. So it's random. Yeah. It's it's random. So the detectives get there, and they think, well, maybe a kid was shooting at like a stop sign. And you know, I talked to Bill Roberts. He you know he worked the case, and Bill said, you know, we didn't know what it was. We we didn't think it was somebody intentionally shooting at a person necessarily. He said this isn't Los Angeles. This is Sacramento. So we, you know, we, you know, we, we just didn't expect that. We thought maybe this is an accidental killing. Well, you know, it wasn't. It was Richard Chase, and he would use this weapon for his future killings. Now, where it became diabolical is, is what you talked about. He started going around the neighborhood with the magazine things, and he's what he's really doing. He's searching for victims, and this next he's a predator murder, now. He's a predator, yeah, right? Right, and he's searching and. And he's going to do, and his next kill was, uh, and I've been to all these locations. Uh, There's a little road called Tioga Way that sits behind what was at the time a a place called the Pantry Market. And this Pantry Market was a grocery store with a nice big parking lot. And there was, you know, they had a little place in the back people could also park. Well, right across from there. If you uh, were like right over the fence or bushes or whatever, there are the homes of Tioga Way uh, on both sides of the street. Well, there was a a young couple. This is a really terrible, terrible thing. It's just when you think about this, how horrible this is. There's a young couple, David and Teresa Wallen. She's 
Mm-hmm. I think a couple months pregnant with his baby. You know, they're I mean they're having a family. They just normal kids, really. That's all they are. Just try to get a start in life. He works mm-hmm. for she works for the state. Talk about random stuff. She works she worked Monday through Friday at the state, but she had the day off. And so she was uh, at home. And he had a job, and he was getting ready to leave that job, was training another person, but he wouldn't get home till like 6.30 at night, okay? Got off at 5, had a couple beers with this new guy, and then came home. Well, during the day, she was doing the kind of things that young mothers do. They keep up the house. They're doing some cleaning up. She had her door unlocked. Chase had gone to the pantry market, which is just, you know, one step over from her house, and then you go around the front. He had, run, he had come to the pantry market. He had run into a, a, a young woman he used to know from high school when he was at, okay. at Mira Loma. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. followed her in. He's got encrusted stuff all over him. You know, he's got, he looks a mess. He's trying to do everything she can to get away from him. She does. He leaves and he walks on the other side and he cuts down. Uh, in front of, I guess, the uh, East Lake you know, residence. He comes around the corner, he goes all the way down, and I don't know if he tried some other homes. Periodically, he would try doors to see if they were unlocked. Mm-hmm. And if they were locked, he wouldn't break in. Now, he has crawled through windows before. But if he encountered the door that was locked, he was just as likely just to go on. But um, he entered her house, and when he did, uh, she was in the process of taking garbage out, a bag of garbage, and he shot her, uh, shot her several times. I think one of the bullets might have missed. One, uh, the coroner said, went through her uh, right or left hand, I can't remember which, and her arm where she was, it was like a defensive thing, you know. Oh, there's not a lot you can do with a man shooting at you, but it's a natural defensive reaction to put your hand up. And then she was hit in the face, but then the shot that killed her uh, entered her skull. Well, it wasn't enough just to kill her. He uh, then went to work with her. Um, with And he liked necrophilia, too. I'll tell you another thing. He could not, you know, he wanted, before his murder start, you know, started, he wanted to have normal relationships with girls. But he either could not get an erection or he could mm-hmm. not sustain an erection. With his girlfriends, and you know he had this one girlfriend. She tolerated that for some time, and because she liked him. This is before he was exhibiting any of the real classic schizophrenic symptoms, but he had problems with impotency. You know he, so he he was impotent to some degree, but ah, not impotent. You know when it came to necrophilia, mm-hmm. he had no problems yeah. then. So 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 what wow. he did was he they they end up finding a lot of semen within her. Okay, so they knew the guy, whoever did it, raped her, but it was after death. And he cut her up and butchered her. And, of course, he ended up, they found a pail that had had um, blood in it, and then there was a little yogurt cup he had used to dip it in there and um, drink the blood. And, of course, the yogurt cup, and all, there's a lot of real evidence that was a part of the case file, you know, when I was out there, I mean, I took bullets out. Was that the of first hair. time, Kevin, that documented where he actually drank blood? Drank I mean, that human that blood. murder, the second one. Oh no, no. The, well, yeah, the second, yeah, the human blood. He had been the killing human blood. Yeah, human right. blood. Now he started off a number of years before then at the, I think it was the American River Hospital, 
he had treatment there, he had treatment in another location, and they used to catch him. I don't know how he, Chase would catch these birds, but he would catch these little birds sometimes, rip their heads off, drink the blood. And one day they found him in the yeah. bushes with with feathers on him, and he was covered in blood, and he had some blood on his mouth. Well, this kept arising within him even before the killing of Ambrose Griffin, where he would steal dogs, murder them, drink their blood. He would He would purchase dogs, kill the dogs, drink their blood, he even killed a couple of his own dogs, of his of his parents. Uh, he would also kill rabbits. And, uh, you know, one time he injected himself with rabbit blood and nearly killed himself. Uh, so he was in very serious condition. But, no, that was the first time he drank human blood. Well, if you mm-hmm. can imagine the detectives arriving on the scene, I mean, there's murder, and then there's something diabolical like this. And sure. there, there was one. There was one fellow, I think his name was Clark. This guy had a lot of experience with homicides. When this guy came into that scene, and, and, and it was so terrible because he had to work both really bad both murders that week. That right. one and the oh, one that yeah. was coming up. He was ashen, and he was a hardened detective. And, you know, the detectives, and it was led by uh, a guy named Ray Biondi, uh, Lieutenant Biondi. You know, and, you know, Biondi knew <laughs> If we don't catch this guy, he's going to keep on killing. It's going to be a bloodbath everywhere. So they knew they had a real nut job on their hand. He was drinking blood, killing. They butchered this girl. Poor David Wallen comes home, finds a dog. I think the dog's name was Bruno, acting very strange. Comes in, finds his wife, backs out of the room, calls, goes to the neighbor's house, in shock, calls, the poli- calls his father. They call the police. Police come and... You know, and I remember talking to the Sacramento County, uh, you know, you know, County DA, because I think about these victims and I wonder how they done since then. I ask him, "Did you keep up with with uh, David Wallen?" And uh, he said, "For a while, you know, we would talk." I said, "Did he ever get married again?" I said, "Yes." I said, "Great." I said, uh, "Did he ever have any kids?" Yeah, he did. I said, "Good." Can you imagine what they did to that man? But he survived it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, anyways, that was the first murder. And then Chase, you know, went and committed another. Uh, now, that was in January. I can't remember the exact date. He killed Griffin December 29th. Yeah, I think maybe the 7th or the 8th of January, he killed Teresa Wallen. And then there was a tremendous right. amount of legwork on the part of the detectives, and they're just they're checking everything out. And then he goes, and uh, within, I think, a week or two, you'd have to check the dates on this. I'm not sure. Yeah, with, with Evelyn. Yeah, Evelyn Marat, yes. Her son, Jason. Her, I think it's nephew, David Fiori or something. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. And then a guy that was kind of sweet on her, even though she had a boyfriend, he kept hanging out with her, uh, Daniel Meredith. Uh, They all were butchered by Chase in the same way through gunshots. And, uh, and, you know, so, so, you know, that was like a week later. And uh, in that case, and we, we can we can go back and if you have questions uh, mm-hmm. more in detail, but for anybody that takes advantage of the thing that Wild Blue Press has now, of being able to get that book, especially for free, that's very, very, very limited time. Uh, yeah. You'll read about how he takes the baby. He kills the baby there, too. And uh, that, that Evelyn was, was babysitting, you know, the toddler or whatever, but, uh, mm-hmm. and takes him back to the apartment and... Uh, ends up eating parts of his brains. Yeah, that, so, uh, that was the most bizarre thing that I, I, and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't fathom how he, you know, 
put it put yeah, it in the amazing. refrigerator, and then at the end, it, there there's something in the end where how they end up catching him, where this this toddler is uh, is is sort of part of the evidence, right? Right. It's just it, yeah, it's just unbelievable. And uh, like I say, even hard investigators, they just it's just it's so much emotionally. To have to deal with, especially when you get into the murder of children. But anytime you have murder and you enter a murder scene, anytime I write about the case, a lot of these people will not release the real horrible pictures. And I, I don't even care to have them, but I always tell them I need to see them because I want to see what the detectives walk into. And I've seen pictures where people were murdered like in a kitchen and there is blood everywhere. It's on the floor. It's on all the cabinets. It's sometimes on the ceiling. And it is a horrendous thing to enter. If you want to get a good sense of it, and detectives are really good in describing what they've seen, and that's good. But whenever you can get crime scene photos, even though you have no intention of publishing them, uh, it gives you a real, you know, it's like the old adage says, a picture's worth a thousand words. Sometimes that's true. It is. But, hey, can I play devil's advocate here? I have a question mm-hmm. with regard to, mm-hmm. now, during this time, it's my understanding that I guess the court um, made the, the, the parents a conservator of of Richard, and they had set him up in his own apartment. and yes. And his apartment was just, uh, just indescribable in terms of the filth and the smell and they wouldn't allow right. groceries in and all of that. Well, right. where, what were the parents doing all this time? They saw all this dysfunction and everything. Yes. Why didn't they step up to the plate and do anything? I kept asking myself that question. Well, here's here's what you got to realize, that I have lived this. When you live with somebody that's mentally ill, I mean, I came right. home one day, a weekend from Bible school, and there were five police cars in the driveway. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah. who's been killed? Who's dead? What has he done? My heart's racing. I go in there. They're just hauling him away. He's 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 acting like he's going to get violent. I didn't know what I was walking into. When you live with that, it changes you to a degree. Yeah. And some sometimes when you know that a situation is not going to change, and you have an opportunity to let us say alleviate the stress and maybe place somebody in the care of an apartment, if you could get them to, you know, functioning enough that they can do that, it's actually a relief. So, you know, when I'm reading this about the Chase family, they would do a lot for their kid even living in that apartment, but it reached a place where he needed to be out. And they would do whatever they could to oversee his life. But Richard Chase reached the point where, uh uh-uh, he didn't want to let him in. And then he would maybe keep the mother out but let the dad in. And it was only because the dad kept pushing that he got in on the day that where Richard had injected himself the night before with rabbit blood. He saw how seriously ill he was. He rushed him to American River Hospital. But, uh, you know, Chase had a couple places he lived at. He had one apartment. I guess it was on, yeah, on Watt Avenue in the same apartment complex. He left there, and he said he wanted to go back east, but he ended up going to Pyramid Lake. He got arrested there, was was city nude, covered in blood, in Pyramid Lake, Nevada, got arrested by the park rangers, found a liver in his car, but it wasn't human. It was an animal. They they just t- took his weapons, and, uh, and uh, you know, he, he was released. 
But he came back, got another apartment, and uh, it was the second apartment, I guess he got that, yeah, number 15. I've got a upshot of this in, in the book where Bill Roberts, uh, the picture I took of him in, in uh, De- Detective Roberts in 2012, this is where they finally nabbed Chase uh, in front of his mm-hmm. apartment, Roberts and, and two other people. But from the family's perspective, they did everything they could. And when, when Richard got weird and didn't want to let him in, they just didn't always press it. And I can understand that. You know, you mm-hmm. don't think necessarily. You, you, you look at your son, you already know that he's nuts. Right. You, you want to you, distance you yourself from, from the dysfunction as much as possible, but kind of keep yeah. an eye on him. Yeah, and you walk away from the door thinking, well, you know, he's off his rocker. He doesn't want to sin. It's a phase that will pass. They're, and they're not necessarily thinking that, like, once he's taken body parts back there or the baby, that anything that diabolical is going on. They never believed he was doing anything like this. They so, had no idea. But, no, they had no idea. And because he mm-hmm. got weird and wouldn't let him in, that wasn't like a red flag to them to where they said, oh, what's he doing? They just thought, well, he's being weird, and we're going to, you know, just give him his privacy. Well, don't you think well, also, Kevin, that we look back at the the, age, the time, back uh-huh. this, when this took place, there there weren't the resources and the knowledge and everything that we have today. So uh-huh. it, was, it, it was a different time. And I think, you know, I kind of lived through that same time with the drugs and the LSD and yeah. Um, we all had a weirdo that was in the neighborhood <laughs> that acted yeah. like that. I, know. I mean, That's there true. were several, and I yeah. I know out of out of the group of people I knew or not always acquainted with, but there was a killer in the midst. So yep. you know, it's right. It's, it's, and, and again, with the families, uh-huh. I, who wouldn't want to get that person out of? out of your house and out of your life. I mean, you need a break it's, from all of it. Yeah, it, it's a nightmare that never ends. And when you first right. go into it, you think it'll change, it'll change, he'll come back, it'll change, it'll take time, they'll help him. And you reach a place after a number of years and you say, you know what, he's not coming back, and this is it. So he died a long time ago. My brother died a long time ago. And then mm-hmm. once he died 20 years after this, he was just a shell of a person of what he was. And it was just, that's why I didn't, I have a, a great deal of grieving for him. I grieved a little bit, but most of my grief was when he lost his life many years before then. But this is when, when you live with it, you get a different perspective. Once I was on the phone with a judge begging a judge not to release him because I thought he was going to become violent. You know what the guy said to me? He's got rights. He's mm-hmm. got rights. I mm-hmm. said, well, so does, I said, so do the people that he's going to kill have rights. What do you think about right. that? Well, so, I mean, what are you going to do? His you right did it. That's what people like. Yeah, it's it's got to be extremely difficult. And uh, we've we've had our good friend uh, Jennifer Bishop Jenkins on uh, on our show, and she um, has a family member who has severe mental illness, and she talked yeah. about her experiences with that. And we did a show on many of the high profile cases. Uh, like in Washington D.C. and whatnot, the woman that was shot that threatened the president. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's a quite a good show. If people want to go back and listen to it. But mm-hmm. um, you know, it's just not something you can fathom. And and you're right. But you know, things that I'm thinking about as you're talking. You know, when when he went in and slaughtered this this woman who was babysitting yes. a little toddler, and the boy yes. said, 
you know, it's a crime of opportunity. You come upon a house, you see that, you know, people, there's only one car in the driveway. Okay, maybe I can be the mastermind and, and, and conquer all these people. But then there are other people that he encounters and, you know, oh, the, the door's locked or he just passes by somebody that he could have mm-hmm. killed, but he just walks away. So how do you make sense of those he might have chosen and those he might not have? Like in the very beginning, um, Kevin, was there something precipitated that first murder? You know, that's a funny thing because um, needing the help that he know that he knew he needed, that uh-huh. still doesn't make any sense why he felt the need to, for instance, go out and do a drive-by shooting on Ambrose Griffin. He, for some reason, he got this desire to kill. Now, the killing with Ambrose Griffin had nothing to do with his blood drying up. There, he didn't stop and cut him up and drink his blood. It wasn't about that. It no. did fulfill some tor- some sort of satisfaction within him that he did it. Very curious, though, that that was his first kill, and it had no relation to what he was going to, to do with the other people that were going to be the next to die. When you look at the murders, the murder of Teresa Wallen and the murders at the at, at Evan you know, Moraz's home, you mm-hmm. look at something that is not just kind of frenzied, okay, but it is also the fulfillment of that diabolical need that he had to perform, not just necrophilia, but the drinking of blood. And so when he said his blood's drying up, I'm going to assume he really thought by drinking that blood it was going to help him. But even in the midst of that, he knew it was wrong. And he knew society didn't want. And in fact, he admitted to the uh, court, or he admitted to the detectives, and it's, it, and it's in the records, that he uh, would have uh, either he said either nightmares or dreams about those people that he had murdered coming back. And so they were on his mind. You get that little bit of sense that he was thinking about, you know, the taking of their lives, and like almost like there's payback there. There's payback from them for the wrong he did because they're going to come back. But uh, so, but but there's but you know, had he not killed again uh, after Ambrose, you know, Griffin, he would probably have never been caught. They found a couple of shell casings out on the actually a, a news crew did the, the next day and turned them over to the police, but there were no prints on there, and they and uh, you know he just I mean it would just be this day an unknown killing, but it was a it was a it, it, it was a fact that the kind of murders he was destined to, to commit starting in early January, uh, he wasn't going to be able to do that forever and, and not be caught, but he could surely create a lot of death. Well, he he was escalating, was right, escalating that, you know, he went from just a drive-by to, you yep. know, um, to taking out a whole group of people and, and yes. shooting them and taking their wallet and then, and then drinking yeah. blood and cutting up their organs and then taking right. taking a child home. I mean, it just seems to get more and more and more serious. But the, the well, interesting part yeah. to me, too, is that yeah. at the end or toward the, the last part, he would never – didn't they, like, interrogate him for hours and hours and hours, and he would never admit to anything until he got on the stand? Uh, 
He didn't admit that he, he did anything, right? Yeah, he, he yeah, he clammed up. And I think that surprised detectives a little bit. That yeah. he kept clamming up. Yeah. But what his attorney wanted to change all that and just get him to admit it and that he was insane. Yeah, so that he was insane. He, he tried to get him to go down that route. And so that's what, what that's the, that's what uh Salome fought for. Not that he didn't do it, but that he did right. it, but he was insane when he did it. Sure. And that's where the prosecution really knew their stuff and convinced the jury that if you're concealing and trying to hide, you're showing the cognitive ability to avoid detection, which means you're thinking it out. You are not going to be under the – you cannot be put under the heading of, of – of of legally insane, he showed that ability. You know, there's killers out there that I mean, there's a killer here in Louisville that dragged bodies out in front of the house to be picked up by the trash people, oh, and and they God. ask him, they ask him, it's the neighbors, what are are those mannequins? But and he didn't answer that. He said, I'm leaving this for the trash. Now that that certifiable, certifiably insane. He he just didn't think. He thought that was the normal thing to do. Well, Chase had the ability to avoid detection, not forever, but for a time. And, and there and, was the amount of evidence, right? There was no nobody else, and people kept seeing him in the area, right? So there wasn't oh, a question just, about who it was. Oh, yeah, right? not just that, but uh, the remains of, of, of the toddler were found in his apartment, and the uh, Luger-style twenty two caliber pistol that he carried that they got that he had on him when they arrested him, uh, you know, matched all of the murders. So, I mean, without question. Yeah. I mean, Sally knew there's no... Listen, he knew it was going to be an uphill battle anyway to save his life. It, it was just, he tried for the insanity defense. There's no way. Mm-hmm. He he didn't think he was going to be able to pull her off. He didn't. He was a smart guy. He, he knew it was uh, going to be a, a tough tough fight that he would no doubt he, most right. likely lose, and he, and he did. But, yeah, uh, yeah Ch- Chase had everything on him. You know, he he had the weapon. I mean, it was the, the, you know, the cake was all dough. And Chase knew it. When Chase came out of his apartment that day and saw those detectives, he tried to run. And, you know. Yeah, and you're describing he, the capture now, right? Can you tell people about the capture? And yeah. maybe why, why did the dogs, this is my other question, why did the dogs not detect the toddler there in that in that bag? Well, they didn't. Uh, they couldn't enter his apartment, and that and the detectives that visited him. See what happened was that during this very twenty four seven heated investigation, right before Chase was captured, she happened. This girl that ran into him at the pantry market. I think I can't remember. Her father was a retired police officer. I think in any event, she called the Sacramento PD, talked to somebody in homicide. Yeah, she explained. <laughs> yeah, what? Yeah, and so you know they. Uh, so Bill Roberts and two other fellows went with him, and and they, you know they described him and they, they, this person had been seen in like a, wearing an orange jacket and so they, so so they were thinking you know this this might be our guy. Well, it comes to find out when uh, uh, you know they they identified him by way of picture as being Richard Chase. Uh, they found out where he lived, and I don't know the exact his number fifteen apartment. It's a place on Watt Avenue, 
And uh, they went there, and uh, he wouldn't come out. And so they acted like they were walking away, and one of the detectives went to the upstairs office and called Chase, and I think spoke to him for a few minutes, but he still wouldn't come out. But they stayed long enough that Chase thought they were uh, gone. He comes out the door, shuts the door. He sees one detective like two doors down one way, two doors down the other. He'd already shut the door, couldn't get, get, you know, get back in the apartment, maybe locked, I don't know. But he took off and tried to run past the one guy, and they ended up tackling him. And um, the one guy was so carrying out really. What was he really, carrying, though? Was oh, he, he had. Carrying a package? He, he, yeah, he had the, uh, he had uh, bloody rags inside of a box with some other things. He had the 22 with him. But he had already gotten, and there there were remains of the child inside, but he had already discarded most of the body. I guess he had just decapitated the child. Maybe they found most of the head in the apartment, but uh, I know they found brains. I know I know he had some on a plate, must have been eating them in his bedroom. I don't know. Oh, but, my God. Uh, so it's really, really it's just, it's just, you say it can't be true. It just can't be, but it is. Uh, and so, but they had, uh, he had dumped the body prior to them getting there. And so uh, they they found, there was no doubt, the, the, the child's blood, but uh, no body. And that body was not discovered uh, until sometime later, uh, which uh, which I think is a little odd because it was in, it was between a church building and another building mm-hmm. back by a dumpster. And you would think that that would have been, and these these cops were working really hard, but for some reason they missed it and nobody discovered it. it. Yeah, they just missed right. it. And uh, but then that day came and then that was it. So uh, at least well, they found the child. So. Should we should we tell people? I just want to let you know we've, we've only got about six minutes left to our show. Okay. And um, what I wanted to should we tell them about the about the ending? And I also wanted to see if you could give uh, contact information and what particular message might you have to leave with us? <laughs> well, I, I would suggest uh, that I, I, I'd like to say I'm with Wild you know, Blue Press now. I'd like people to, if you visit me at wildbluepress.com, I'm there with a bunch of other authors, we, and we write blogs uh, about crime, and, and you can go back there. They're all archived. Uh, we'll answer questions if you want to visit us there. All our books are there. Even my books from other publishers are there. And, uh, and there, are li- there are links to that. And uh, we're just a group of crime writers. And so we welcome you all coming to see us at Wild Blue Press. And you'll, you you can get to know some other people that you may not know yet. And they're putting out great you know, true crime works. Most of it, I guess, is nonfiction. Some of it is good crime thrillers. And so right. I, you can find us all at Wild Blue Press. As far as the end of Chase, yes, Chase ended up what they call cheeking his meds when he was in, I guess, San Quentin. And that's the fault of the person that dishing out the meds. But he kept not swallowing his medications, and he would mm-hmm. save them. And some people, and I talked to the, the Sacramento uh, DA about it, some people think he just committed suicide. But the DA believes what I believe. Chase was so concerned about his health always believing that something horrible was wrong with him. The DA told me one day, he said, you know, it's been my feeling all along that he took this one massive dose 
of medication that he had saved up to finally cure him rather than kill himself. To me, that makes more sense than him just killing himself. The end result is uh, he did, wouldn't get the gas chamber, but most people who get the death penalty in California are going to die of old age anyway. But he ended up killing himself probably on that quest to finally fix himself. He did fix himself, but not in the way he intended. <laughs> wow. It's just incredibly, like you say, diabolical, sad, um, there's so many adjectives here. I, I don't know. It's it's very unique, unique story, and uh, yeah, yes. it's not for the faint of heart either. Nope. Uh, but Delilah, do you have some um, some party comments you'd like to make before we sign off to, or something to ask Kevin? Well, I just thought it was a fascinating book, yeah. and and I hope uh, everyone out there who has the opportunity yeah. will take advantage of getting it for free right That's now. Right. So right That's wildbluepress.com and and get this book for free and and I mean it is for people who love true crime books this is this is one to read um and, it is. and, and lock your doors and lock you your doors <laughs> <laughs> keep the lights on <laughs> yes yes well yes, if yes, you yes, ever yes. if you if you would ever like me to come back and uh talk about Theodore Bundy I've written yes. a, a a very interesting biography on him, and, uh, and, we, yeah. and listen, we could easily yeah. take the whole show up on Bundy. We, his victims right. range through six, six states. I think it's ahead, also Delilah. fascinating that you've written books about Custer's Last Stand. I'm really... Yeah. Um, very interesting think, man. Uh, Either love him or hate him. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. When it comes to Custer, there's just not a lot of neutral ground. And uh, look, let me say, he's impervious to fear in the Civil War. The guy should have been killed a thousand times, always at, the, always, always at the head of his men. But he did not have the same luck and fortune, one might say, fighting Indians in the West as he did fighting rebels in the South. But that's for another wow. day. <laughs> that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll have to take another date after the series, Kevin. Let's let's do that, okay? Yeah, and sure. And keep in touch because sure. I think our audiences would really appreciate that as well. But okay. uh, we want to thank you from the bottom of our heart. Uh, thank you. This has been a fascinating hour. And uh, thank you. Please, everyone, do go to Wild Blue Press and get get your book now. There's only a, a couple more minutes to do so for free, but. Buy it if after the show, and we will sign off for this evening and stay tuned for our next wonderful offer next Saturday. So thank you so much, Kevin. Thank, thank you, you very much for having me on. Thank you all. Oh, it's our pleasure. Stay in touch, okay? All right. Okay, bye-bye. All right, very good. Thank you. Uh, thank you, my audience, and we'll see you next Saturday. Mm-hmm.